0: This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Welcome to this session of the Engine Room of Democracy. Today, we're very privileged to be able to welcome John Bellinger. John is the co-chair of the Global Law and Policy Practice at the storied law firm Arnold & Porter here in Washington. He is also an adjunct senior fellow in international law at the Council on Foreign Relations. John, when he was in government, served for eight years as the legal advisor, first for the Department of State and then for the National Security Council in the White House during the George W. Bush presidency. He had previously served in the Department of Justice and in the CIA as counsel and was also counsel to the Senate Intelligence Committee. This is a man of remarkable background and expertise. Today, the purpose of my interview with John is to... Explore what rule of law means in the world of diplomacy. It may seem simple, but diplomacy frequently must be done in secrecy, but democracies call for transparency. Diplomacy requires working with some pretty unsavory people at times, and democracies, of course, prefer to work with other democracies. Diplomacy involves evolving global norms and reconciling global norms, so there's a remarkably important topic for us to explore. John, welcome. In each of these sessions, I've been beginning with you, an expert, to start with the Constitution. What does the Constitution say about diplomacy?
1: Well, John, it's uh, great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me, and thanks for all you do at CSIS. So when we're talking about law, as Americans, it's always a good place to start with the Constitution. Actually, the Constitution itself does not say much about diplomacy itself, but the responsibilities of the president, the Congress and the judiciary uh, flow from other powers that they have. So the foreign affairs powers, as well as the military powers, uh, are shared between the president uh, and the Congress. And with respect to foreign affairs, it says that the president has the power to make treaties with other countries with the advice and consent of the Senate. And he has the power both to appoint ambassadors to other countries, again, with the advice and consent of the Senate, and to receive ambassadors and other public ministers from other countries. So it doesn't say much about diplomacy, but uh, over the course of the country, the president's uh, powers to conduct diplomacy have been uh, implicit in his power to make treaties Uh, and to both send and receive ambassadors. So, uh, under the Constitution, the president really is the chief voice on foreign affairs and conducting our foreign relations, Uh, but the Congress does have an important role, and even the courts can have a role uh, with respect to uh, disputes involving treaties uh, or statutes that uh, impact foreign affairs.
0: John, you know, I think most Americans probably have a rather superficial idea of what diplomats do. Let me ask you, what was your role as the legal advisor in the State Department?
1: So this is really the dream job for an international lawyer, being the legal advisor is the senior international lawyer for the U.S. government and then the chief lawyer for the State Department, running a terrific international law firm of a couple of hundred lawyers who advise our ambassadors, the secretary of state, our Diplomats around the world, the president, the National Security Council on treaty interpretation, U.S. laws that impact our foreign affairs. We help and and often are directly involved in the negotiation of treaties. Uh, we represent the United States before international tribunals. I stood up at one point and represented the United States in the International Court of Justice in the Peace Palace in The Hague when Mexico had sued us for. Uh, not complying with an international agreement. So we advise and assist on all matter of both international law, but also domestic law, the constitution and statutes that impact our foreign affairs. Great job working with terrific people at the State Department. It's it does it does sound like a terrific job. Not too late for you, John. We <laughs> can, uh...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, they're looking for quality people, not me, <laughs> John Lee. You know, a, a diplomat goes out, and obviously they have tremendous interaction on a you know professional basis. But you know, they're there representing the United States. They're there representing the president. How does the government? provide control so that uh, diplomats in the field really are following the, you know, the outlines and the guidelines of the president's
1: policies. So a quick word about the State Department. We've got um, embassies or other facilities, consulates in about 270 locations around the world. Now that's more locations than there are countries because many countries will have multiple consulates. We have embassies in about 170 countries. And we only have about 8,000 foreign service officers. They are assisted in our embassies around the world by uh, probably about 50,000 locally hired people. So the nationals of the countries where they serve to help process visas, give passports and things like that. But we have relatively few foreign service officers spread around these embassies and consulates all around the world. So in an embassy, they work for the ambassador who is appointed by the president, as we discussed uh, under the Constitution, with the advice and consent of the Senate. So they work for the ambassador. They receive their instructions uh, from the State Department. Foreign service officers have a good deal of leeway, of course, within the general instructions from the State Department to to do their jobs, to interact with foreign governments and to help Americans around the world. But they, they work for the ambassador and they receive instructions back from the State Department back in Washington.
0: You know, in the military, we have the term rules of engagement, you know, which kind of give you the outlines of what you can and cannot do. Are diplomatic instructions, rules of engagement for diplomats?
1: Often, yes, for formal things like treaty negotiations. I'm sure, as in the military, we don't try to micromanage what every foreign service officer or diplomat is doing. But uh, sometimes when things are very important, a diplomat in a foreign country, the ambassador or a lower level official is specifically instructed to uh, go in to an embassy and deliver a complaint or a request. It may be actually written in the form of a diplomatic note or even a demand that we call a demarche. uh, And those will be done under specific instructions. With respect to treaties, we don't just let our diplomats go around the world willy-nilly negotiating treaties. The Secretary of State will give very clear instructions after checking with other departments and agencies who might be affected by a particular treaty. And then very clear negotiating instructions often line by line or word by word uh, are sent out from Washington. But other things during the course of a couple of years in a posting, a Foreign Service officer may simply just have meetings with local or government officials without specific instructions.
0: John, let me ask you about, you know, the dynamic of diplomacy requires secrecy. You know, because you're having a conversation with your government and another government and it's still in a formative state. So it does obviously require secrecy. But we're a democracy and the foundation of democracies is transparency and open debate. How does this work from your experience? How do we reconcile those two worlds?
1: Well, I think the conduct of diplomacy is a little bit different in that we're not regulating Americans so much. We are conducting diplomacy uh, with other governments. And that generally has to be conducted confidentially, both with respect to the instructions that are given and our assessment of the foreign governments. So these instructions go out to the embassies and assessments of what foreign governments think or do come back from our embassies. We obviously don't want those to be read by our adversaries or even by our friends, much less published in the Washington Post, or the other side would know what our instructions are, or they would know specifically what we think of them. So most of the instructions uh, or reports that go back and forth are in the form of what we call diplomatic cables from the old days when they really were cables, Uh, but they are at the confidential or secret level. Uh, Some things later on, you know, 20, 30 years later can be declassified or can be released under the Freedom of Information Act. But it is important, John, that the conduct of diplomacy and our assessments of foreign governments and their capabilities, even of our friends, be conducted confidentially.
0: But you don't see and haven't seen an inconsistency where we're doing things in diplomacy that we wouldn't be able to explain to the American public.
1: I can't say, John, that it has never happened uh, with all of the things that we've done over all of the years in all of our embassies. But in general, no, I think that Americans would be extremely proud if they saw the daily work of our uh, State Department officials, our diplomats, working very hard. Uh, on behalf of the United States, on behalf of individual Americans, and on behalf of American business. So it's it's not nefarious things that we are trying to keep from Americans. It's we keep it confidential so that we can do our work vis-a-vis other countries. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, we had a bit of a snapshot into this world maybe 12 years ago or 15 years ago when WikiLeaks released to the public several hundred thousand cables and what was so amazing to me at that time, was first, how well-written they were, how clear they were, and then there were absolutely nothing in these cables that contradicted the position that the government had presented to the Congress in a debate. You know, your feelings about that.
1: Well, I'm glad you asked about that, John, because that, that incident really burned me up. It actually happened about a year after I left office during the first term of the Obama administration. But the Wikileaks published about 250,000 State Department cables, uh, along with a lot of military information as well, ostensibly because they thought that it was going to show wrongdoing by the United States. And I think actually, you will remember this better than I that I think the military might have done a couple of things in terms of military activities that raised some concerns. But with respect to the 250,000 State Department cables, You're exactly right. I have not seen any wrongdoing in any of those cables. What it showed was that our Foreign Service and our State Department officials doing really quite extraordinary work around the world, promoting human rights, working for freedom of the press, supporting those who opposed dictators, pushing for the interests of uh, American businesses, and giving, as you said, very candid and very well-written assessments of world leaders. So it was very unfortunate when uh, those were leaked by uh, Chelsea Manning to WikiLeaks. Some of uh, the WikiLeaks supporters tried to suggest that, oh, no harm was really done and that transparency is important. Uh, But uh, harm really was done. People who we talked to, not just foreign governments, where it was embarrassing to see what we had to say about them, but because... Our foreign service officers talk to opposition leaders and they talk to human rights activists and they talk to members of the opposition press and their names are then put in the cables. Well, I talked to Joe Smith today and he told me confidentially what he thought about his own government. When those cables were leaked, a number of those people got in serious trouble in their countries and either had to flee or be relocated because it would really be like turning upside down all of the sources uh, of a reporter inside the US government. So that was, it was really unfortunate. I totally agree. It was maddening and extremely
0: irritating, but it also, in my mind, just as a silver lining, it validated how good the foreign service is. John, let me ask, we're such a fractious nation and we're a fractious government. We've got so many different perspectives in government and the world is very complex, yet a diplomat has to speak with one voice, the voice of the United States. How do we reconcile those two things?
1: Well, also a great question. Diplomats have to talk not only to our friends, but also to our adversaries, and sometimes even our enemies. It can be more fun to talk to your friends about shared interests, but an important job, and perhaps maybe even more important, is talking to our adversaries, one, to deliver strongly worded messages to them when we think that they are doing something wrong that we disapprove of, whether it's abusing their own people or acting contrary to U.S. interests, interfering in our elections or doing other bad things around the world. Sometimes even with people who really are our enemies and who we may not even have diplomatic relations with, we still need to talk to them because there may still be some Intersection of values or of interests somewhere. Maybe it might be a zero sum game with respect to each other, but we might actually share a goal somewhere in the world. So this can be some of the most secret but important diplomacy when we are telling the Russians or telling the Iranians or telling the Chinese, one, what we think of them, but also how we approach a problem. So our diplomats have to work with friends and foes alike. Let me
0: shift to a topic that's somewhat controversial in, in the American political landscape, and that is whether America loses its sovereignty by agreeing in an international forum or an international organization. You know, there are some Americans that say we shouldn't be dealing with any of this, that these institutions undermine our sovereign independence, our sovereign rights, we're forced to compromise on things that are against our interests. First, just you're a lawyer that does work here in the US, you're a lawyer that did work internationally. Help us understand how we should think about this question of does America lose sovereignty when it cooperates internationally and international institutions and agreeing to international treaties?
1: John, I wish this was something I could talk to every American about to try to disabuse people uh, of this understandable concern that uh, we shouldn't be part of or that we lose our sovereignty to big international organizations like the United Nations or the International Court of Justice. But you know, these are not perfect institutions, far from it. But the United States cannot get everything that it wants all by itself in the world. We need to engage in collective work through uh, treaties to get other countries to agree to do things we want them to do, like deliver the mail or allow us to fly over their countries or return fugitives uh, from there. We can only get those things through treaties and agreements. And similarly, through international organizations like the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the International Court of Justice, Uh, This is how we work together with other countries to get the things that we need to do to address common problems. You know, every American ought to be able to understand this, that individually, each of us can only do so much. But if we group together with a group of friends and like-minded people, we can get much more done. Now, admittedly, when we do that, it can be pretty frustrating because not all of our Our friends and colleagues always see things the same way we do. That's the same way, as you know well, John, from your Defense Department days, that, you know, the United Nations is not a perfect institution. But as Henry Cabot Lodge said, who used to be ambassador to the United Nations a long time ago, the United Nations was created not to take us to heaven, but to prevent us from going to hell. (laughs) <laughs> I hadn't heard that. <laughs> that is very good. John, you've given a
0: very strong and correct, in my view, pragmatic interpretation of the value of international organizations and treaties. But let me ask you as a lawyer to step back and share with us your thinking about you know, the relative importance of international law compared to sovereign American law. How do you think about that? You've had to negotiate treaties. I know that there's a formal process under which we bind ourselves, you know, to international treaties. But how should Americans think about international law as opposed to
1: American sovereign legal environment? Well again, and I wish I could talk to every American about this because there is a sense and you know I heard this from many senators from other Americans who believe that At the State Department, you know, we would just sign up to every treaty to be part of the international club. But that's not true at all. The United States enters into treaties and other international agreements in order to get what we want. You can't get the bank to give you a loan unless you sign the documentation with a promissory note. And it's the same in international law. To fly over another country to get our letters delivered, to... Get law enforcement requests answered, we enter into agreements with other countries. so this is not actually giving up our sovereignty. You know this is an exercise of our sovereignty in order to get uh, what we want. This is not world government, world federalism where we you know want to give up to somebody in Brussels or The Hague the ability to tell us what to do. This is how we agree with other countries to get what we want. Now admittedly. If we want to be able to fly over another country in a straight line, you know, we have to agree to let other countries fly their aircraft over our country. We can't say, well, we can fly across Europe, but nobody can fly across the United States. So it is reciprocal. But we enter into uh, international agreements and treaties uh, so that Americans can be benefited. And we don't sign up to everything. We, we sign up to the ones that are in our interest.
0: JOHN, how about the question of enforcement? I've heard it my whole professional life, you know, America lives by treaties, other countries cheat. You know, what do you think about the issue of enforcing other people's activities consistent with treaties? We're very proud to say we do, but others argue that the reason that we should not do treaties is everybody else
1: cheats and we don't follow up. And that is the, the criticism that we hear a lot, particularly from conservatives is, you know, Why should we bind our hands if other people are not going to abide by them? Well, the answer is, in in most cases, other countries do abide by treaties and and agreements. I mean, particularly the more sort of technical workaday things like delivery of letters and, and so forth. But there are enforcement mechanisms. They are imperfect. We do have a court in the Hague, the International Court of Justice, that uh, here's disputes between countries. When one country has failed in a treaty obligation to another, one country can sue another. The United States has both sued and been sued in the International Court of Justice. And we have both won and we have lost. And, you know, that's a good example, John, because, you know, one of the sort of the rhetorical criticisms that you'll you'll see most often, including from this president, but from certainly past presidents is, well, we will not listen to unelected bureaucrats or judges in The Hague. Well, you know, I get that. uh, But if there is a dispute with another country, and a country has not fulfilled its treaty obligations to us, we have agreed to a body of judges, and there is an American judge on this body, who here disputes, because otherwise, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to go and invade another country, attack them, bomb them? We believe in peaceful settlement of disputes. And Sometimes countries abide by international law and sometimes they don't. We have other ways to try to uh, put sanctions on countries who don't abide through the Security Council, which is really the enforcement mechanism if countries do not abide by their international legal obligations. But we can resolve disputes before the International Court of Justice. We can shout people out when they do not comply and ultimately we can get the Security Council to impose sanctions on a country if they don't comply. But international law is imperfect. It is hard to enforce. John, let me ask, the Constitution talks about
0: treaties, but we don't do so many treaties anymore. You know, they're hard to do. Now it's far more common to see government, at least our government, operate through executive agreements. As a lawyer, tell me how you feel about that. Does it have
1: the same standing, Uh, you know, and does it concern you in any way? Uh, uh, Yes and no. We enter into agreements with other countries, uh, both through a formal treaty-making process, uh, agreements that then are presented uh, to the Senate for their advice and consent. But not every international agreement that's binding has to go through the Senate. We, over the... 200-and-some-year history of the United States uh, treaty-making process, there's come to be a a rough agreement between the Senate and the executive branch that the executive branch can enter into many agreements on its own on technical things that don't have to go through the Senate. What you're referring to is that we are seeing more and more agreements simply being done between the executive branch and another country without going through the Senate and that is partly a function of the fact that the Senate is just refusing to approve our treaties. I'll just give you a statistic or two, and then we can move on. During the eight years that I was in the Bush administration, uh, the Senate approved 163 treaties. That's probably more treaties approved by the Senate than in any eight-year presidency in American history. So a lot of new, important international law. And a lot of this was sort of work today. treaties, extradition treaties, mutual legal assistance treaties, but environmental treaties, law of war treaties, pollution treaties. In the Obama administration, in eight years, only 20 treaties. So 163 during the Bush administration, 20 during the Obama administration. And during the three and a half years of the Trump administration, the Senate has only approved 12 treaties. So you can see that downward arc.
0: And is that just the way it is, and, or does it concern you? Or does it, in any sense, does it weaken our legal posture if it's just an agreement as opposed to a treaty?
1: Well, it's, I, I honestly, I don't think everything has to be done as a treaty. There are only certain types of international agreements that the Senate believes need to be done as treaties. So a lot can be done just by the executive branch. But it, it does concern me that there's become a suspicion, if not a hostility, in our Senate towards treaties generally is somehow a suspicion that treaties are for the weak, that that's to give up our sovereignty, to have to agree to do something with another country. So we've got a number of of senators who really will vote for almost no treaties. They won't vote for tax sharing treaties or extradition treaties, they just seem to be against all treaties. And so I think that's concerning. Of course, as with international organizations, no treaties are perfect. It's easier to try to get a, a really good treaty between two countries, but if you have a larger treaty with a lot of countries, you know, it can be harder because everybody tries to get in uh, their little piece of it. So I understand the criticism of a particular treaty is usually right, but just because you know, there's a criticism uh, doesn't mean that the alternative, i.e. no agreement at all, is necessarily better.
0: Yes, absolutely. John, tell me, what, what are your thoughts about the way we seem to be conducting a lot of foreign policy through sanctions, economic sanctions? What do you feel about that? And, you know, that's more of the purview of the Treasury Department, you know, and sometimes commerce than of state. What are your thoughts about sanctions and what are your thoughts about how well we coordinate on the implementation of sanctions?
1: So that's definitely right, John, that uh, in the last 20 years and last 10 years and particularly the last three years, the executive branch and Congress through legislation have been imposing more and more sanctions on countries that we don't like Iran, uh, Russia. Cuba, others. And these involve prohibiting Americans from dealing with those countries at all, or prohibiting Americans from dealing with individual named companies or people in those countries, or uh, sometimes actually refusing to give foreign companies or persons uh, access to our U.S. financial markets. So it's gotten to be a very very complex structure not always terribly effective I can tell you now that I'm out of government it can be really difficult for the private sector for banks and companies to try to navigate this thicket of sanctions and the treasury department's office of foreign assets control which administers a lot of the sanctions tends often to, to be very vague about what is prohibited or what is not prohibited making it Extremely difficult for the private sector. So, oh, I understand the reason why we have sanctions. It's to try to punish bad behavior by Iranians, Russians, Cubans, others, Chinese. But it doesn't always work, and uh, it can be quite difficult for the private sector. I think, I certainly wouldn't say don't have sanctions, but it may be that we have overdone it a bit.
0: John, let me quickly shift and just ask. Diplomacy we think of as in the public good, but an awful lot of what the State Department does is Try to help an American company, you know, get introduction in another country for a market opening or to help an individual that has a particular uh, issue that they want to explore. Or maybe they are a collector and they want to share art in another country, but they're worried about the legal. What is the balance between the general public interest and private parochial interests that the State Department wrestles with?
1: Well, glad you asked that as well. I, I worry sometimes that you know many Americans, particularly conservatives, feel that the State Department diplomats simply go around the world to cocktail parties, having uh, hors d'oeuvres and swilling uh, Chardonnay. You know, that's not what the Foreign Service does to begin with. But it completely misses out a whole part of what the State Department does, which is to help individual Americans. If they get into trouble around the world, they get sick they die, family member dies, but also American businesses. Uh, A primary job of the State Department is to help American business around the world through a whole variety of different mechanisms, both to complain if foreign governments are mistreating them, abusing them, imposing unfair uh, laws, so to complain about those things, or simply advocating for them to to push for big or little US companies for their products to be uh, sold around the world. So this is a major part of what the State Department does together with the Commerce Department is to both advocate for and to defend American business around the world. It's one reason why despite efforts, including by this administration to severely cut the budget of the State Department, This has been very strongly resisted by the U.S. business community who, you know, they don't do this uh, just because they like diplomats generally. They do this because they see this is really in their interest to have a strong State Department advocating for American business out of all of our embassies around the world. Yeah,
0: and I could share with you dozens of stories where companies really did need help from the State Department. And, uh, and I've never once had them say that they were disappointed. State Department's always been very responsive. One last question before I, we wrap up, John, and that is I've explored this in some other sessions with colleagues about the way we lawfully undertake covert activity. You know, And the the legal framework for this is something called a finding. I know that you had to deal with findings when you were general counsel at the NSC. Uh, so my, my question really is to, for you to reflect both as general counsel of NSC as well as State Department. How does findings, how does that work in a sense? And how does the State Department enter into that to make sure that the foreign policy dimension of covert activity is considered during those deliberations?
1: So, I've dealt with the uh, covert action programs and the oversight and authorization of covert action programs in a number of different jobs when I was at the CIA, when I was at the National Security Council, when I was at the State Department. The legal framework is that the United States and the president may not engage in a covert, secret activity to influence events in another country. This is non-military, but to influence political or other events in another country where the U.S. hand is hidden. Unless he makes a formal written determination called a finding where he has to find that the covert action program supports identifiable national interests and uh, that it is necessary and important for the U.S. national interest Uh, to do so. So the CIA generally carries out these covert action programs in other countries. They're overseen by the National Security Council and go through a very careful review process each year uh, and before they are approved by the president. When I was the general counsel of the National Security Council, my job was to coordinate the legal review for each covert action program. And then we would get the views of the lawyers from each of the relevant departments, the Justice Department, most importantly, to determine that the program is consistent with U.S. law, uh, but also with the Defense Department and the military and also with the State Department. So the National Security Council coordinates the process, uh, but the State Department has a important voice in that process, both as a matter of policy, is this good policy, but also is it lawful? Now. Of course, not every covert action program in another country where we're trying to influence events in another country is lawful uh, under their laws or under international laws. They have to be lawful under our laws, but they may often break another country's laws or at least violate uh, something under international law. And so U.S. lawyers in reviewing a program like that need to determine is this something that the United States is prepared to support, that we think it's necessary, and frankly, that ultimately, if made public, the American people would believe that it was the right thing to do.
0: Oh, thank you. We have come to the end of the time. I'm going to have to schedule another one with you because you're such a fascinating intellect. Let me just say, as I look back over your presentation, you know, that, you know, rule of law is just fundamental. It's just, it is what we are as a nation. It's embedded in our constitution. It depends on institutions that we create, like the position of the legal advisor to the Secretary of State. It depends on procedures that we adopt as a nation and that we follow, for example, as you just described on findings. And it really does depend on a political consensus that this is appropriate and important for America's national interests. So I'm very grateful for your taking the time to share this with us.
1: Any concluding thoughts before we wrap it up, John? I'll simply say, John, that I've worked for 17 years in a number of different government agencies as a lawyer. uh, And the role of lawyers in the U.S. government process is a really important one to review, to ensure that what our government agencies do complies with U.S. law uh, and complies with international law. Uh, is a really an extremely important function. It's what we're all about as Americans. We sometimes don't get it right. Sometimes people don't agree that what lawyers say is lawful is always lawful. But the role of the U.S. government lawyer in international national security law is a really extremely important function.
0: Well, John, absolutely. Thank you. You are a brilliant lawyer, a dedicated public servant and a great patriot. Thank you for taking the time. You're going to help us all with this.
1: Thanks, John. Great to be with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify.